Well, welcome back to our study of the story as we dig into what God is doing in the world and how your story intersects with his story. So far, we've seen that the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. We've seen this as we looked at the Sistine Chapel painted by uh, Michelangelo. And that despite the fact that there are all these stories, they're interwoven together. And at the center of that is the fact that God desires a relationship with man. We've talked about the fact that there is an upper and a lower story, that God is, is doing a work, and then when you are born, you're dropped into that story. What goes on in your daily life is connected to what God is doing, and those two intersect and come together, and they most fully do that in the life and work of Jesus Christ. We've also looked at the fact that when we look at the story as it's structured in this particular curriculum, we see that there's five different acts or movements. And so these five are, are the garden, Israel, Jesus, the church, and then the new garden city, which you could draw on a napkin and tell this story to somebody really in, in 10 or 15 minutes. And right now we are in the garden part, and we're moving into the Israel part. This is in the Old Testament, and this is the part in Genesis. And so with the story timeline, we are specifically in the Genesis time period of the Bible. The first 11 chapters is what we covered last week, creation, fall, flood, and Babylon. This morning we are, in just a few minutes, going to be in the Abrahamic narrative. We're going to be looking at God's call to Abraham as he builds a nation. I said it again in a sermon in 1994. These chapters are some of the most important chapters in the scripture. I, I really could probably spend years just studying and teaching in Genesis. Last week, we saw from the creation that the beginning of life as we know it. And I want to just highlight that word beginning. Okay? The beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3, all the way even through 11, is about beginning. It's about what God is doing in the beginning, it's about the preparation. That God is preparing a place and a people, and, and he gives them this perfect life. We saw that God, when he prepares, he's got the whole universe. And then in six days, he creates for Adam and Eve, preparing a land for them, a place for them to dwell, a, a garden environment, a paradise in which they can relate to him and be with him, God's people and God's place in God's presence. That's, that's the key to the scripture, God's people and God's place in God's presence. We saw that Mesopotamia is the area where this is taking place. And so, you know, we're used to our geography in America, if we even know that. And we need to reorient ourselves to what is going on and where it's happening. And thankfully, if you have your storybook with you, you can actually open now to the inside cover of it. And you have a map of the ancient Near East right in there. And last week, if you had that with you, I encouraged you that you would go ahead and you can put on there where some people think the Garden of Eden might have been. Down there by Ur, where the Euphrates and Tigris River come together and, and join into the Persian Gulf. He was an inventor, he was a mathematician, he was a genius. Well, the Garden of Eden was not the only event that we looked at. We had seen last week that in addition to that, the flood came. And you could also, if you want, put a little boat up near the top near Assyria. That's a potential location for where the ark rested or finished. So you have these little icons to help you understand where these things took place. And why was the ark even involved, as, as we saw last week? Because of the problem that was introduced, because man and woman rebelled against God. And because of that and the rebellion, the results and the cursing, the promised plan of God, which we're going to continue looking at today, came into being. The promised plan that God would, would use the seed and the serpent would have a war with the seed and the Savior would come to join us back to God the Father. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at the story as it continues. As we look at God's plan continuing, that you are not going to end God's plan. You, you could do the worst thing possible, and you are not going to stop God's plan from happening. And that, that's a, a comforting thing in one sense for us believers, knowing that you really can't ruin God's plan. Yes, there's all sorts of negative consequences that can happen, but you can't ruin God's plan. 
many kings our king was, but uh, our Genesis one through eleven. And, uh, we had a summation slide last week of that: the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Babel. Summary. Details the beginning um, of God's plan. So with me for a minute. This is how all those problems. The series. I love this. They come into play. They pale in significance to the promised plan of God and what He is going to do through that. That despite the foolishness of, of mankind, He's not about to scrap His plan or start over. Although if He does, to some degree, with Noah. But the whole plan is not going out the window. He is still going to continue His plan. His plan will go on. Noah was a righteous man from the line of Seth, but he, he wasn't the only righteous person that lived between the time of Adam and the flood, you need to understand. Because if you read the genealogies in chapter 5, you'll find that there was a man named Enoch, and he walked with God, and then he was not because God took him. He's another righteous man. So in, in this line, one of the things you see is, remember, you got the seed, the serpent, and the Savior. And what you see through Scripture is you see the seed of the woman... Okay, that's the physical seed, okay? They, they biologically come through the woman. They're not coming through the serpent, okay? But there's a spiritual aspect. This is what is talked about in Galatians by the Apostle Paul. This is what Jesus said when he talked about the, to the Pharisees. He said, you think you're from Abraham, but you're really not. You're of your father, the devil. And they're like, what are you talking about? Abraham's our father. He's like, no, he's not. Yes, biologically speaking, they are descendants from Abraham. But spiritually speaking, they were not. They were descendants of the serpent. Because they had no faith. They rejected Christ. They rejected the Savior. Therefore, they are not of the seed of the woman, meaning of the faith that God is referring to. And so throughout the scriptures, you see that this is going back and forth, that there is this war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it's a spiritual war. So God had chosen Noah. Well, the flood and Noah didn't fix things. Because if you know anything about that story and you were here with us last week, you know that right after the flood, Noah got drunk and then his sons disrespected him. Noah's story ends in Genesis 9, and then we encounter the genealogies in Genesis chapter 10. But Genesis 10 and 11 are not chronologically in order. You need to understand that. Everything in the Bible is not in order the way it happened. They, they put it in the order they want to, to teach the theology and to connect it to what God is, is saying and revealing. But you also need to understand this. It wasn't written to you. It's for you, but it wasn't written to you. Genesis, for instance, is written by Moses somewhere around 1450 B.C. when they're coming out of Egypt. It's for people who've been freed by God from Egyptian slavery, and now they're going to live under God. And so they're laying out all this backstory from God in contrast to what they've been living in Egypt. You see, in Egypt, they worshiped the sun. In Genesis, Moses tells them, God made the sun, so we don't worship it. So you've got to understand the context that's going on. The people come out of Egypt are being taught this. So Genesis 10 and 11 are not chronologically in order. Genesis 11 occurs before Genesis 10. So in Genesis 11, it's the Tower of Babel. What happens in the Tower of Babel? Well, we're going to see hints of God's reversal of things in the Tower of Babel story and also in our narrative today. In Genesis 11, they try to make a name for themselves. They want to make themselves famous instead of making God's name famous. They try to stay in one place instead of scattering and being fruitful and filling the whole earth like God told them to do. So God says, okay, you're not going to mess up my plan, though. See, it's not about you being famous. It's about everyone knowing God and having a relationship with God. So people are like, why does God want to be so well-known? Like, is he arrogant? It's kind of prideful of him. No, God wants to be known because God wants a relationship with you. Think about that for a minute. you really got to understand that. The purpose of being known by God is that you have a relationship with God so you can be God's people in God's place in God's presence. Without God's presence, you're in hell. That's what we're dealing with. So this ends their attempt at power, at least for the time being, because God scatters them. He gives them different languages. They can't understand each other. Power building ends. They're trying to be famous ends for the time being, and they're moved on. God's plan moves forward.
So with that, let's go ahead with God building a nation this morning. An intro with this video. There once was a man named Abram. God made a promise. I will make you into a great nation, and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. Exactly as God promised, Sarah became pregnant. God told Abraham to take his son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. But an angel stopped Abraham, and God provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Isaac married and had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was Isaac's favorite, but Jacob wanted the inheritance. Confused, Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob and promised him the inheritance. And like his father, Jacob had a favorite son. Little did Jacob know that his favoritism would put his son, Joseph, in danger of being killed by his own brothers. Jacob had 12 sons. That's next week. Jacob's 12 sons. So, Joseph is the story for next week. Today's story is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, we're getting through a large chunk of the scripture today from Genesis 12 through Genesis 26 or so. No, 36 maybe. So, um, if you look at your Bibles or in the story, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, the first page of the chapter 2, I think it's around page 14 in your storybooks, 13, page 13, says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's households to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Genesis chapter 12. In order to understand the rest of the story, you must understand this foundational passage of Scripture. In fact, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is the bedrock of the rest of the story that we find in Scripture. Here, in these few verses, we find huge promises made both to Abraham and to all the people on earth. These promises and God's plan are reality, and it's, it's the plot line for the rest of the events encountered. God's story. So what I'm saying is if you don't understand what's going on right here, then you're not going to understand the rest of the Bible story. The rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is God making this promise plan work out, even when people try to mess it up, even when people try to make themselves famous instead of making God famous. I need you to look with me at this passage, okay? There are three promises made specifically to Abraham, Abram at the time, and two promises made for all the other people. The first promise, it says, I will make you a great nation. Okay, who is going to make him? God is going to make him into a great nation. One of the things I did when I was reading chapter 1 in the story is I noted where God said something and then it happened. I noted where God was making things appear or happen. So as I was reading this second chapter in the story about God building a nation, I wanted to look for some of those same things. And so I, I write in my books. I highlight. Okay, In the Bible, I do the same thing. And so I, I was going through this chapter, and I was doing what I did in the first chapter, and I was underlining and highlighting where God said things and where God did things. And I want you to notice 
could have done it without Medishare. In our past, who is the one doing the thing? It is I. He says, I, the I is God. I will make you a great nation. Who's going to turn Abraham into a great nation? God's going to. It's not Abraham's idea. Abraham is not going to be able to turn himself into a great nation, even if he tries. God is going to turn him into a great nation. So in Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel, you had a group of people trying to turn themselves into a great people and a great nation, and God squashed it. And here, the next chapter, he chooses a man, Abram, and he says, but I will turn you into a great nation. See, it's got to be God's way. It's got to be God's plan. He's got to decide how it's going to flow. And when we try to rebel against that, we're going to squash it. The second thing that he said was, I'm going to bless you. Again, who's doing the blessing? God's doing the blessing. That word bless is a super important word. So you should do something about that. Start, exercise it, highlight it, write yourself a note, something. That word bless. Then he says, I will make your name great. Now, I've already alluded to this, but that should remind you of which story. I've just mentioned it like three times. Who was trying to make your name great? Well, God is, but who else was trying to? Babel. The people in Babel were trying to make their name great. And God squashed it. But here God says to Abram, I will make your name great. See, if God wants to make your name great, if God wants to use you and he wants to make you famous so that everybody knows your name in 2,000 years from now, people are still mentioning your name, that's God's choice. But what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to try to make it so that our name is made famous. It's a struggle for everybody. Nobody wants to be the little spoke in the wheel. Well, that's what holds the wheel together, right? Well, God chooses who's going to have the big name and who's not going to have the big name. And we need to learn to be okay with that. That quest for a name, I think, comes up not only in Genesis 11, but I think in Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses. It's a very controversial passage, the first four verses of Genesis 6. But I think what is being referred to there is a quest for a name, renown, reputation, even superiority has been the driving ambition of these people of renown, these kings or warriors, whatever they, they might have been, in Genesis 6. Same thing in Babel, as I mentioned, Genesis 11.4. Now God gives to one man this blessing. The fourth thing that he says is, I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. Now, this is going to be ultimately very important throughout the rest of Scripture. Now, sometimes we wonder, why does God treat certain people the way he does, or certain nations the way he does? Or, for instance, the Canaanites, when Joshua goes in to take the land, why does he treat them the way he does? You can't properly understand what's going on without understanding this earlier story in Genesis and what God is doing. The fifth thing that he says is, I will curse those who curse you. So that poses a question for us, okay? If I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, okay? Who is Abraham supposed to be a blessing to? And how is Abraham to be a blessing? These questions appear to be answered in the next three uh, clauses that are listed. The Lord added two more promises, okay, which we just mentioned, the blessings and the curses, to the first three. And then he says this, though. He says, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So who is Abraham supposed to bless? Everybody. All the people, all the nations, everybody is supposed to be blessed through one man. One of the things that you see in Scripture is it's like this accordion thing, okay? So God starts off with, a man, you can start with the small if you want, Adam and Eve, right? And from there, they multiply and reproduce, and it grows big, right? But then, 
It's disastrous. And so what does God do in Genesis 6? We go back, right? To eight people this time. And then what does it do? Gets big again, right? And so, but what does God do again? Down to who? Abraham now in Genesis 12, right? And so you have this accordion thing going on where it's getting big and then we're narrowing in. Getting big and we're narrowing in. And so God is saying, yes, I want all of the people. The, the plan from the beginning. What was the plan from the beginning in Genesis in the garden? The man was put in the garden in the east with the woman. And he's supposed to be God's people and God's place and God's presence. Until they did what? They sin. Sin can't be in the presence of God. Therefore, when you sin, you forfeit the presence of God. Your rebellion results in you being removed from the presence of God, and they are kicked out, and they are kicked to the east. We saw the same thing continues. Cain and Abel continues. Okay? So all through you're seeing this. Now God's saying, as part of that promise plan that began in Genesis 3.15, with the seed, the serpent, and the Savior, that God is going to take, and he is going to, by his own initiative and his own power, he's going to rework this so that he can have his people again in his place and his presence. And he's picking Abraham start that movement at this time period. That's the goal. When Yahweh appears to Abraham after he's arrived at Shechem, the ancient word about a seed in 315 of Genesis is again revived. So now it's directed, though, to Abraham. Him and each of the successive sons of the promise were to be the source of genuine blessing. So through him, the whole world is supposed to be blessed. The Apostle Paul would later point to this phrase, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, and declare that it was the same gospel that he preached. You can check that out in Galatians 3.8. Simply put, the good news was that in the promised seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So the beginning, the embryo, the genesis of God's good news could be reduced to the linchpin word, blessing. That's why blessing is such a big word. We use it all the time now. But when God's talking about blessing, he's talking about the whole world getting the gospel of Jesus. That's the blessing. And how's he going to get the gospel to the whole world? Through one man, Abraham. Wow. That's an impressive feat. So what did those adjustments look like? Because the one who was blessed was now to be the conduit of blessing. I've talked about this before. Why is Abraham going to be blessed? Just so he could be awesome, dude? No. He's going to be blessed so that the blessing can flow through him. In other words, God has a plan to bring the blessings from heaven to mankind. How is he going to do that? Abraham's a pipeline. You know, we have pipelines in the world. We get oil from them. They, they ship oil across the ocean, if you didn't know that. They have pipelines from the ocean, okay? So they're pumping up this oil, and then it's going across the ocean to other places. They have pipelines on land also, or underland, right? And so same thing. It's the conduit. It's the way you get the oil from one place to another. How is God getting the blessings from heaven to earth? It's going to be through the pipeline of Abraham and his offspring. Genesis 12, verse 7, says the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. And he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. There's a few things that God has promised. He's promised Abraham land. He's promised him seed, offspring. He's promised to make him into a nation, to be a blessing, and through him to bless the whole world, right? So what is the rest of God's story about? The rest of God's story is about seeing that happen. And just as in any good story, there's all the problems in between that make it, quote, a good story, but also that make it so long until the end. Does that make sense? So everything else, everything in Genesis, everything in Kings, everything in Samuel is all these problems that come up. And the question is always the same question. How's God going to make this work? How is God's promise going to pan out? Is he going to be able to keep his promise in his word? Or is it going to get all messed up? 
That's the same thing that's happening over and over and over. So the gift of a child is very important. But as you all know, with Sarah I and Abram, a call by God, do they have a child? No, they don't. In fact, they won't have a child for quite some time. So this becomes a major problem. From here on, the importance of the gift of a child who would inherit the promises and blessings become one of the dominant themes in the patriarchal narratives, appearing all told some 28 times. This becomes of the story. Gary Schnitzer in his The Torah Story, I hope I didn't butcher his name, but the book is called The Torah Story, says the focus through the remaining of Genesis is on the offspring of the seed. In Exodus and Leviticus, it underscores the blessing in terms of relationship to God, and in Numbers and Deuteronomy, it demonstrates the progress to the land and offers instructions on moving through the land. So, you've got to get the offspring, you've got to have that seed, okay? You need to be in right relationship with God. You need to be in the land. And this is all supposed to happen So this is the focus. And this is where the eight crises in Abraham's narrative, Abraham's life story, comes to play. And that's what I want us to look at today. How will this plan actually play out? Well, will Abraham be able to pull it off, or is he going to mess it all up? When the story opens, Sarah has no child. Genesis 16, verse 1. The Canaanites are in the land, Genesis 12, verse 7. Well, that's a little bit of a problem because they're supposed to be in the land and they're supposed to have a child. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, Sarai is taken by a man named Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is a title like a king. Abraham, in his fear, because he wasn't trusting God, they had gone to Egypt because of a famine. This is common in Scripture. So Abraham had left, all right? He left. His father has died, right, in Haran. His moves was Lot. He offers Lot, uh, whichever land he wants, because their herds are so large, okay? And so Lot chooses the land that's over here, which actually is outside of the city. All right, so he's moving himself out of the, the land. So that a famine occurs. They're hardly in the land at all when the famine occurs. Well, in Egypt, Abram is afraid. And so he says, hey, tell them you're my sister. Because if you're my sister and the king really likes you, he'll take you, but he'll be nice to me because I'm your brother. But up in, if I'm your husband, he'll kill me and take you. So, so just say you're my sister. Really Plus, you're, our, you're my half-sister anyway. Go check it. That he is. Okay? But what's Abraham doing? He's afraid. He's already not believing what? God. Because what did God tell him? He's going to bless the whole world through him. He doesn't have a kid yet. How's he going to bless him? So Sarai ends up in a predicament. Why does this matter for the story? Because she gets taken by the Pharaoh. Well, he's taking her because he wants to be with her. Okay? Now, what might happen then? She could have a kid. And now she's got a kid that's not from Abraham. But God has promised an offspring to them. See how this can mess up the whole plan? So what does God do? God has to intervene. God fixes the problem. He shows up to the Pharaoh and says, watch it, buddy. Hands off. That, that's that man's wife, actually. And so he gets her back. All right? That's the first time. He does that a couple times. He's a slow learner. Law, as I mentioned just a second ago. So that's the first one, okay? There's eight of these things. The second one is law, okay? Because Abram still doesn't have a child, Lot was his brother's kid. Okay? Well, when his brother died, what kind of happens in that culture is you take them under your wing. And then actually, you can actually kind of adopt them, and they become your heir. So if Abram doesn't have any kids, then he would give all of his stuff to Lot. Lot would inherit it. Okay? 
So it's Lot when he becomes offspring that God blesses you. But then Lot moves out of the land. So what about that? So now Lot is actually removed from the situation. So again, the question becomes, where's the what? Where's the kid? Where's the offspring? Where's the seed? We need the seed, right? So then in Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, God reiterates the promise. And so at this point, Abraham is, you know, he's a little bit wondering what's going on. How is this really going to work out? So what does God do? Actually, I think it's five times in this narrative that God shows up and he reiterates the promise that he's making to him. So in Genesis 13, 15, when Abraham is maybe doubting a little bit, God says, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk along the land, to which land and which I will give it to you. So Abraham moves to his tent and wants to live near the hopes of Mamre and Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. When they built an altar, what are they doing? They're worshiping. They're building an altar to worship. So Abraham's had a couple of crises. I find yourselves on different sides of an issue. It's really important that you come together. I want you to take a little For family life this week, here's Ron's deal. You know, one way you come together is to hold your criticism and listen to the other person's perspective. Adam was looking forward to his kids coming over for the weekend, but his wife, Monica, their stepmother, was concerned about the tension that she might face. So Adam, instead of criticizing her for being pessimistic, he would usually do. So we're not done with crisis and connect to her need. There's still multiple more to come. The weekend, he said. What can we do to so make things go it's reiterated, for you? but Abraham, yeah. again, he begins to, to think, together. well, maybe what God means is for life someone out. So Eliezer is mentioned. Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, he, have, he pursues lots of attackers. Because Lot got uh, kidnapped, basically, in a, in a war feud that's going on. And by doing this, he is setting himself up to be attacked by all of these other warlords or kings in the area. So he, he says, well, maybe Eliezer is going to be my heir because I still don't have a kid. Again, this in the culture was permissible. So you don't have a kid. You give it to a high-ranking servant in your household that you trust. And they become kind of like family to you. So Eliezer will be... But does God go with that? No, God does not go with that. In chapter 15, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, notice, God is speaking to Abraham, okay? Just like he spoke in Genesis 1 and 2, right? He says, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside again and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that new so, nope, Eliezer is out, okay? Crisis of faith averted again. I don't know how, but not, he says, it's coming through your body, Abraham. What part don't you get? You're going to have a kid. But Abraham still doesn't have a kid. So, what happens next? Well, Sarai says, I got an idea. You got to have the kid, right? Well, obviously, I can't have a kid, So, but you got to have one. So, I tell you what, I got this servant girl, and in our culture, this is normal. If I can't have a kid, you can have a kid with the servant girl, and she becomes my kid. You're like, well, that's kind of weird. Okay, fine, but that's what they did. It was normal. All right? So, Abraham is going to go to the culture instead of relying on the creator. How many times do you and I, we do what the culture says instead of what the creator says? So let's not get too upset at Abram, even though he was wrong, because you and I did the same thing, right? God says no. So he says, okay. Unfortunately for Abram in this case, God didn't intervene before. He let him go ahead and do it. So what happens? He sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant. Ishmael pops out. Well, so now Abraham's thinking, who's the promised seed? Ishmael! I got me a boy now! Ishmael's my boy! He's the promised seed! Hmm. So, is that what God's going to say, though? Nope. This is his impatience that drove him to this. In chapter 17, verse 2, God again speaks up. He says, 
I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. He is now 99 years old. Abram was 70, I mean, yeah, 75 when he went in the land. We got 24 years gone by. No kid. Okay? He's got Ishmael, but no kid from him and Sarah. Thomas reiterated in 17 too. 17, verse 15 to 21, we see they're still barren. God said to Abram, as for your wife, Sarai, don't call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. You know something? We're just like them. God says something, and we find every way around it. Maybe he means this. Maybe he, he meant I could do this. Maybe this. Maybe that. So God didn't mean any of that. God meant all along. Abraham and you and Sarah are going to have a kid. Pat, you described the intervention as the most profoundly embarrassing, so heartbreaking, wrenching experience Maybe it'll be my nephew Lot. Maybe it'll be my servant Eliezer. Maybe I'll have a kid with our servant Zohar and we'll take him as our own. No, no, no. Where they had two books. Let me get real plain with you, Abram. You and her are going to have a kid. Of course, they laugh. Yeah, right. I'm 99. She's 89. I don't think so. Uh, okay. Who told you you're going to have a kid? This should remind you of Zechariah, right? Back in the, up in the New Testament, right? He's, he's there offering incense in the temple, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, your wife's going to have a kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, shut up. You don't talk for nine months. Right? That's exactly what happened. Okay? He doesn't. And honestly, we're the same. Look what happens in Genesis chapter 20. So, right after God says, okay, a couple chapters, but right after God says, no, you, Abram, and you, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah now, you two are the ones that are going to have this kid. And then we run into chapter 20, another crisis. Some forgiveness to be sought. Abram travels to the region of the Negev, and he settles between Kadesh and Shur. While he lived in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, She's my sister. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, had Sarah brought to him. Huh, deja vu, right? So now that God has said it's going to be you and her, you're going to have a kid, and suddenly she's with another man again. That doesn't sound good. Now, the, the word Abimelech is not his name. That's a title, just like Pharaoh. But look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Does God only speak to believers? Obviously not. He came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, You're about to die because the woman you have taken, she's a married woman. Now, here's the ironic thing. Lost people have more fear of God than his own people. You can see it in Jonah's story, too. Lost people have more fear of God sometimes than God's own people when he shows up like this. Okay? So Abimelech's like, what? And what does he do immediately? He gets her out of his house. What if we responded that fast to what God says? But God's people all through the Bible don't. This is the irony of how does God possibly love his people so much? All through the Bible, his people have their houses filled with idols and junk. He shows up one time to Abimelech, and what does Abimelech immediately do? All right, she's out. She's gone. It really is never too late. I didn't want to trivialize your life by boiling it down into four quarters. However, in verse 15, Sarah's still barren. In chapter 20, Abimelech takes her, gives her back. The problem there is she could have had a child that wasn't from Abraham. They're still not in the land. Yahweh intervenes. And chapter 21, the next crisis is this. Okay, now we've got a kid, right? Is Ishmael or Isaac going to be the promised kid? You know, he's been raising Ishmael for quite some time. I mean, Isaac's special, but so is Ishmael. He's got a long-term relationship with Ishmael. And then Hagar says, no, nope, get rid of him. So now we're down to Isaac. He's the one. And then we move to the crux of a faith issue in Genesis chapter 21. And God says, he's only got one kid, right? All these years. Nobody else is around. Take your one kid, your only son, the promise that I gave you, the promise I made you, the promise I said, who's going to be blessed through this one son? 
African-American families in Pine no. Bluff, Arkansas, all places. Everybody, the whole world is going to be blessed with this kid, Isaac. Okay, it's all riding on Isaac. The whole world's on his shoulders, right? And then God says, you know, for everything. I want you to go give him as a burnt offering. Now you need to know something about a burnt offering. A burnt offering is completely burned up. That's why it's called a burnt offering. It symbolizes complete devotion to God. That's why you burn it all up. In the other offering, the priest gets to eat part of it. And the people get to eat part of it in some of the offerings. So God gets some, the people get some, the priest gets some. Like everybody gets some, right? It's a feast together. You know, you're all eating together. God, the priest, the people, right? Not in the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings, everything is burned up. It all goes to God. You get none of it. Wow. Yes. What an incredible redemptive story. You know, Pat Summerall has been in the presence of Jesus now for about four years. He died in April 2013. Yes, it does. And Jesus hey, is the, the fulfillment of that. Go to yes. this week. So what does Abram do? Abraham now. What does he do? Early in the morning it says he gets up, but he takes him with him. And he goes out. Now we're in a crisis of faith again. But it says in Genesis text that he said that we, him and his son, would both come back. Hebrews in the New Testament says that Abraham at this point, okay, he's been walking with God for over 25 years now. At this point, he says, I believe that God would raise him from the dead. And I don't know where your faith is, but do you have enough faith that you believe that if God said that he was going to use this person to bless the whole world and then he tells you to kill them, that he's actually going to raise them back from the dead? That's what Abraham says. Oh, no, 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 because there's not the mess. At this point. Right. Look at where Abraham's faith has gone from. So are you thinking the thing that's Now, is he perfect still? No. What does it mean when the Bible says blameless? It means that you serve one God and only one God. It doesn't mean you never sin. It means your whole life is devoted to him, but yes, he still sins. But Abraham is going to You all with me? So is Noah. So Noah's sin. So we continue on through. Eventually, Abraham's going to die. And then, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. It's going well. He's blessed him in everything. It also says in 24, 27, says, praise the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. What's this? Well, we have another crisis coming up because Abraham is about to die and Isaac's not what yet? He's not married, which means he can't have a kid, which means what happens to the promise? The race is done. We're over. Crisis again. And so we sent the servant. Hey, go get a wife. My boy needs a wife. He's 40 at this point. Get him a wife. So they sent him. He says, ah, I found him. Got to my master's home. Okay? And you kind of know the story. He brings back a wife. And so the summary of Abram's life. This Sunday afternoon edition of Renewing Your Mind with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Skip that verse. Sponsored by Dr. David Sutton. Sarah was unable to conceive, and she did not have a child. That's the beginning of Genesis 11, verse 30. We get to the end of his life. After Abram's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who lived near Bear So, did God completely fulfill his promise to Abraham through Abraham's life? Yes or no? Yes, he did. But guess what? Now we start all over. Because Isaac now has the same problem. Isaac is now dealing with the same issues that Abraham was, was dealing with. And so the question becomes now, is God going to be faithful to who? To Isaac. So as the blessing that Abraham received in Genesis in Ge uh, 12 was transferred to Isaac, okay, now the focus is going to become Isaac. And after Isaac, it's going to become Jacob and then Judah, right? 
So the problem is, Rebecca was barren in chapter 25, verse 21. Then in chapter 26, guess what Isaac does? The same thing his daddy did. He lets another man take her. She's in jeopardy again. You see the repeating theme through here? Okay, here's what you need to get from this story. What is God continuously trying to do? Get God's people in God's place and God's presence. And what is continuously happening from God's own people? They're getting in the way all the time, right? They constantly get in the way. They constantly put the plan in jeopardy. And who has to come in and save the day? God comes in and saves the day every single time because it's whose plan? God. And who's going to make sure the plan works? God. And God's plan isn't just to save Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. God's plan is to save who? The world. All the nations need the gospel. God's got to get the gospel to the pipeline of Abraham. Okay, Abraham's dead. We got it to Isaac. Great. Now we got to get it through the pipeline of Isaac. He doesn't have a kid. Well, get him a kid. Get him a wife first. Then get him a kid. Okay. Oh, why is your wife over with that man? Get out of there. God's got to keep getting involved and keep telling people and fixing the problems that we constantly make. How many problems are we making in our own lives? How many times is God having to get involved? You probably don't even know it. How many times is God having to get involved and fix the things that you and I are doing because we're messing things up? Because we're getting away of the pipeline of the gospel getting to other people. Isaac's life mirrors Abraham's journey as he learns to trust God. There's only one chapter on Isaac, basically, chapter 26. Okay, Abraham gets from chapter 12 to 25, and Isaac gets chapter 26. And all the stories that you hear are basically a repeat of Abraham. What's the point? He's just like his daddy. He did the same thing. At the end of the day, the point is this, though. A wife was gotten, a kid was had, and God continued the promise to the pipeline of Isaac, just like he said he would. As Isaac moves off the scene in God's story, the promise is passed along to Jacob, whom Isaac blesses in Genesis chapter 27. Then God reiterates the promise plan in a dream at Bethel in Genesis 28, and then again at Padam Aram in Genesis 35. And the focus now moves to Jacob. This is where we're going to pick up the story next week. So the story moves to Jacob, who, like Abram, is going to be renamed. The new name Israel will become the name of the nation bearing his name. And the obstacles to the promised plan continue in Jacob's life as well. And his story, just like his father's and his grandfather's, begins with an obstacle to producing an heir or a seed. Abraham's wife was barren. Isaac's wife was barren. Jacob's wife was barren. Every single one of their wives couldn't have kids. And then what did God do? He opened their womb so they could have why? He has to, because he promised plans that the pipeline would be through them. So he's got to make it happen. In Genesis 30, verse 1, it says they're racially Judah will then become the fourth son of Jacob and Israel, and he receives the blessing at the end of Genesis 49. We'll talk more about him next week when we talk about Joseph. We know a lot about Joseph. Joseph gets from chapter 37 of the Bible, chapter 50 of Genesis, 37 to 50. So Abram gets 12 to 25, Isaac gets 24, and then Joseph gets 37, I mean, to 50. So Judah, though, is in the middle here, and he is critical because the line of Jesus comes through so we'll have to talk next week about why Joseph and Judah are in there and how they connect together. So let me play this, this summary video for you. That was a very short little uh, clip on Genesis 22. For God to fulfill his plan, God is the one who goes to work. The question all along in our story 
is whether or not you are going to line up your life with what God is doing. Okay? If you choose not to line up your life with what God is doing, he will simply override you. It's that simple. You will lose the blessing. Remember, those who follow after Abraham will be blessed. Those who go against will be cursed, right? So that's your choice. What part are you going to play in this story? My challenge to you is that you get on board, line up your life with God's, okay? You don't ask him to line up with yours. You line up with his, and you do, as this verse says here in Ephesians 2.10, you begin to do the works that God has prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Your children with you. The first thing you got to do is get saved. Then you can get on board with God and what he's doing. When you get on board with what God is doing, then you can be part of the pipeline because you suddenly become part of the seed offspring of Abraham. Did you know that? Read Galatians 3 and 4. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a spiritual Jew. That's That's what Galatians says. And to you, you are now part of this pipeline that has spread the good news to the whole world. When I read the report from the Timothy Initiative in the beginning of service, the 16 unengaged, unreached people groups that got engaged in 2016, that is because the pipeline is still working in bringing the gospel to people who had never, ever, ever heard the name of Jesus, who have no Bibles, no scriptures, no nothing. But you would Guess not. what? When we're part of that, the pipeline is flowing through us. John's gospel you students go to school with hundreds and thousands of students. Darkness, he came to his you own. are the pipeline. But his own Picture them as all having cancer and dying. Not. Okay? So on this occasion, you are the pipeline the city, with the serum to cure the cancer of sin. And if you he don't said, get connected to, to them the and give them a shot city, of the gospel, the then they die the without Christ. And they go the city to hell because that's separated from Jerusalem. God. You are the pipeline. Jesus had spoken of the peace that would be his final legacy. God, we come in this morning. As we unravel this story, we see this thread winding all the way through it, and that thread is you. That thread is you, your promised plan, working its way through, all through Abraham's life, the ups and the downs, Isaac's life, Jacob's life, all of their doubts, all of their concerns, all of their mistakes and their sins and their doubts, their worries. Overrule all of them. God, I just pray that we would be people who are faithful to you. I pray we would be completely 100% devoted to following you. And that you would just override and smooth out all the bumps that we create. I pray that we would completely align ourselves with you what you're trying to do in our lives. For those who haven't given their lives to you yet, I pray, Lord, they would stop resisting. They would surrender their lives. Pray, God, that we could be the conduit, we could be the pipeline to bring the gospel to all the nations of the world that we lift up the name of Jesus. We stop trying to make ourselves famous and make you famous. Impregnable. Impossible to destroy.